Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. America has been enjoying its longest ever economic growth spurt. Markets have been hitting record highs as the country's jobs boom continued for the hundredth month in a row. But the rules of the world economy are changing. The link between lower unemployment and higher inflation seems to have gone missing, and markets are getting nervous. On Tuesday, America's Center for Disease Control warned that the new coronavirus will almost certainly spread around the country, sending federal governments and investors into a spin. In an age of ultra-low interest rates and near-trillion-dollar budget deficits, do central banks have the tools to deal with economic shocks? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how do you manage the world's biggest economy? My guest is Janet Yellen, chair of the Federal Reserve from 2014 to 2018, the first woman to hold that role in the Fed's 105-year history. She's now a distinguished fellow at the Brookings Institution. Janet Yellen, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, nice to be with you. And also with me in the studio is our economics editor, Henry Kerr. Hello. So, Dr Yellen, it's two years since you stepped down. That's right. What is it like to be the most powerful person in global finance? Well, things are always changing and we're always trying to figure out just where the economy is and where it's heading but have to look at unfolding developments very carefully and make sure that we keep open minds about what may be required and not get locked into a view, but always be ready to alter what we do based on changing circumstances. One view of the Fed seen from the outside is that it concentrates power in the chairman a lot more than other central banks. Alan Greenspan You served under him in the 1990s and 2000s. He was thought to be a bit dictatorial at times. And I wondered if you'd aim to contrast your own leadership with that. I think my predecessor and I ran the Federal Open Market Committee in a somewhat more open and democratic way than Greenspan did. Bernanke and I encouraged a rich, open debate on policy and on the economic outlook. Certainly, we we were eager to form a consensus to listen to other ideas to make sure that the broad bulk of the committee was comfortable with the policy direction. And you managed the rare feat of earning praise, at least rare in the political climate we're now in, of, of earning praise from Elizabeth Warren and President Trump. President Trump then didn't <laughs> name you. That's right. <laughs> Um, That's right. I'll let you pick up. If you get a chuckle out of a central banker, you've just got to run with it. Well, you know, it's up to the president to decide who he's comfortable with um, managing the Federal Reserve. Of course, the Senate has a say. I, I think Jay Powell, now Chair Powell, is someone whose views on monetary policy are frankly very similar to my own. And I think that 
uh, President Trump was pretty comfortable with where policy was and was essentially looking for more of the same, although six months or nine months into my successor's term, President Trump became very critical of continued interest rate increases uh, that the Fed put in place. But um, I think Trump saw a recovering economy that was doing well. And as far as I could tell during my term, and at least the beginning of my successors, was happy with the direction of the economy and policy. It's interesting to to hear you say that Jerome Powell and you have similar views on monetary policy. Do you think it's the case that had you been reappointed, monetary policy would have been broadly the same as it has turned out to be? Yes. I mean, I felt that my job as chair... I inherited an economy that was recovering from a very deep downturn. My job as chair, if things continued on that path, was to normalize the stance of policy. Maybe there's a, there's a new normal rather than the old normal, but to move the stance of policy toward a more neutral level. I started increasing short-term rates and also set in motion a plan to begin to wind down very, very gradually our asset portfolio, which was very large. And of course, the further that goes on, the more questions arise about exactly what's the right stopping point for it. But I think certainly initially, I would have been on a path of continuing to raise rates as my successor did. Because another thing that is often said about US monetary policy over the last couple of years is that the main lesson we've we've learned is that we haven't had a lot of inflation. Uh, we've had tremendous jobs growth, more than anyone was forecasting, more than the, the Fed was forecasting when you were in charge. And therefore, looking back, maybe monetary tightening was started too soon uh, and carried on too far after you'd left the Fed. Do you disagree with that view? Well, I will admit that inflation has behaved in a way that I didn't expect. I, if somebody had told me in 2015 that in 2019 or 2020 that the U.S. unemployment rate would decline to 3.5%, and yet inflation would still be running under 2%, I would have found that extremely surprising. It is true that beginning to raise rates was premised on the idea that eventually inflation would begin to pick up. But, you know, the, the increases were not sufficient to halt the expansion, nor were they intended to be. It was a process of gently raising rates and watching what happened to inflation and to the labor market as the job market began to tighten. And we've seen all along the way that inflation has continued to surprise to the downside. And I don't think the policy has been a mistake because um, the unemployment rate has continued to decline. And it's wonderful. We've seen the labor force participation rate of prime age workers move back up further than anyone thought was possible. I think that's enabled this very strong job growth without inflation. I don't really see reason for regret. I'd just like to, to jump in to ask you a bit more about that transition. It sounds like you don't think you had very material differences or have had with your successor. Of course, you were also interviewed for the role as incumbent. What kind of job interview does the president give you as someone who's already in, in post and might 
possibly have liked to, to stay on longer in it at the Fed? Well, I will say that I believe that President Trump initiated a search process that was based on the assumption that he would replace me. I was a Democratic Obama appointee, and I think he felt he wanted his own his own person. So um, I felt that perhaps I was being interviewed as a courtesy. What was the sort of mood of the interview? I would say we had a pleasant a pleasant interview. President Trump is very focused on wanting to see growth pick up to high levels in the U.S. economy. And one of the questions he asked me was how fast I think that the United States was capable of growing. And I think his view certainly was 3, 4, 5 percent was something we ought to be trying to achieve. I didn't really think that that was something that was feasible, but I think that we had a good discussion about why and what the possibilities were. Frankly, I don't think that he had any problem really with the way in which I had managed monetary policy. I think he wanted his own person in the job, and that's his right as president. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, the president has has given up that view or those views, and he's you know constantly been assaulting the Fed and saying it should be cutting rates and not unwinding QE, and he wants looser monetary policy and faster growth. Had you been in the position that Jerome Powell uh, is now in, do you think you would have found that those sort of personal attacks would influence you in your in your role? How how sort of protected do you feel as Fed chair from that kind of interference from the executive? Well, the Fed is a very independent institution, and I see my successor as remaining highly focused on working with his colleagues to figure out what's the right policy to achieve the Fed's dual mandate. I believe he's trying to um, ignore the president's comments or to consider whether or not they might have some merit, but essentially to carry on without being influenced by political considerations to do what Congress is. Isn't that a little hard if you have a very heated rhetoric? I think the president has called Jerome Powell an enemy. That must be a different kind of thing to just having a president who says, well, I don't agree with you and I think rates are too high or too low. It's quite a personal attack. It is a personal attack. I think it's highly undesirable. I thought the president's attacks were dangerous and should stop. But I don't think that my successor is influenced by it. I see him um, marching ahead and doing his very best to do the right thing. Politics doesn't enter the room. I don't think that anything they've done is responsive. Now, I do worry about the comments that the president has made. I'm concerned about the potential to undermine support for the Fed as an institution. Although it's independent, it does need the public on its side to understand what it's doing and to see it as acting in the best interest of the country. And I think the president can undermine that. One of the things that's going on at the Fed right now is that they are uh, reviewing uh, how monetary policy operates. And the reason they're doing that is because we're in a world of very low interest rates. We've already talked about inflation being surprisingly low, but it's also the case that interest rates are so low that many people are worried that central banks won't have the ammunition to fight the next recession. What what are your views on which direction the, the Fed should go with that review? 
I think this is an extremely serious problem, and I think it's one that afflicts most developed countries. And when you look around the world now, the euro area, at the UK, Japan, you see short-term rates that are even lower than those in the United States. And there's precious little policy space of a traditional type in the United States. Interest rates had been drifting down prior to the financial crisis. Of course, the financial crisis was a huge blow to the economy. They felt uh, zero in some countries' negative levels for a long time. But the underlying forces that are causing interest rates to be low are aging populations, slow productivity growth, things that are not likely to change. So this is an environment we're going to be living in most likely of low rates and limited policy space. The Fed is right to be reconsidering its strategy framework. What I see as sensible is for them to indicate that in future episodes of weakness, that they will use all the tools at their disposal, including forward guidance about the path of interest rates and asset purchases. Um, I think these tools worked. I think they need to be used aggressively when weakness looks like it's going to hit the economy, throwing it into recession, that rates should be cut very quickly and stay low for a very long time. That's called a lower for long longer strategy. In a world of low interest rates where central banks can't cut rates, do you think the Fed, the Fed needs needs fiscal policy tools that you have to have tax cuts or you have to have spending increases instead to stimulate the economy? Yes. I mean, I don't think the Fed needs fiscal policy tools, but I think the country is likely to need fiscal policy tools. You know, when monetary policy can do the job, it's something that can come into play quickly. It's not political and it can be employed very flexibly. And so it's become in the post-war period the go-to tool. But now it's getting in a place where it will be hard-pressed to do that. In the United States, in a typical recession, the Fed cut interest rates by um, five full percentage points. Clearly, you can't do that in the future. And while there are other tools, monetary policy just shouldn't be the only game in town. And the question is, does that disrupt the balance of power between central bankers uh, like Dr. Yellen and between politicians like President Trump, especially when, when there's a bit of tension running on that along those dimensions anyway? And I think that balance is being rethought and is a a sort of threat to the institutional frameworks we have at the moment. Dr. Yellen, would you agree with that assessment? I mean, I think monetary policy can be independent and make a contribution, and yet there are situations where it's necessary for fiscal policy to come into play. It would be nice if fiscal policy actions were stabilizing rather than destabilizing, and that hasn't always been the case. Do, do you it think be President nice. Trump's tax cuts were destabilizing? Well, I, th I think having tax cuts that large in a situation where the economy is deep into an expansion and there is a long-run fiscal problem, I think that they were not necessary and frankly not appropriate. But, you know, they did give stimulus to the economy and 
I can't say that the stimulus has been unwelcome in the sense the economy, the labor market is doing very well. But um, I do worry that we have an unsustainably large budget deficit. I'm not, in, especially in a world of low interest rates, I'm not very worried about the size, the current size of the U.S. debt relative to the economy even though it's doubled since the financial crisis, federal debt to GDP is now about 80%. I don't see that as threatening, but the path going forward with very large budget deficits in a very strong economy and an aging population and rising spending on various retirement and health programs, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. So I wasn't in favor of the tax cuts of the size or timing that we President Trump is obviously running for re-election and making the economy a a centerpiece of of his campaign because it is so good. He likes to take credit for the current condition of the labor market, for the jobs boom, for the growth that America's seeing. There's another school of thought that says, actually, that's all nonsense. and It's all all down to the Fed. And it's all because of people like Janet Yellen. Who who do you think is right? Well, look, I think you have to give credit to the American people who um, have made the economy work. They deserve it first and foremost. But look, we had a very, very serious and deep downturn. And of course, the recovery began around 2010, and it's been going on for a long time. And obviously, the Fed has been doing absolutely everything uh, since that downturn to encourage recovery of the economy. And so it's been a long and ongoing process. It's not something that just started when President Trump was elected, but it's continued and that's a fortunate thing that it that it has continued. Let's turn to what's in, in the news at the moment and a big storm cloud over the global economy and that's the threat of, of the new coronavirus. Uh, you've said that you do expect it to have significant effect. Have you become more worried? Well, sure, I am worried. Look, I... I um, have no special expertise in epidemiology and um, and I'm very uncertain as I think almost everyone is about exactly what the economic effects will be. But clearly it's taking a toll on the Chinese economy. China has tremendously important in the global economy and a downturn that seems to be this serious and long-lasting is bound to slow global growth and have a significant impact on many of China's neighbors. China is so important in global supply chains that I think the disruptions we're seeing can take a toll on the production side of the economy. And of course, now seeing that the virus is spreading worldwide uh, simply adds to the level of potential seriousness. I mean, in the past, when there's been the SARS or MERS or other potential epidemics, we've seen sharp hit and then rapid recovery afterwards. Hopefully, that's what will occur this time. But there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And I don't profess to know where this is going. Had something like this happened while you were Fed chair, would you have seen it as a reason to cut interest rates? Well, it could be. I mean, obviously, interest rate cuts can't offset the impact of 
the virus, on the economy, on supply chains, on international travel. But it can have some effects in terms of ameliorating some of the effects on demand. You know, when you have something like this, it tends to cause a significant hit to consumer spending, which could throw the global economy into recession. Interest rate cuts may succeed in softening that blow, but it's not your ideal tool. Nevertheless, if this becomes very serious, it wouldn't surprise me if the Fed decides to cut interest rates. I wondered, you've you've said, I was just going a bit broader there on America and and China. You have, I think, expressed concern about the focus or perhaps over-focus on bilateral trade deficit with China over the last 18 months. And yet there are quite a lot of people, both in economics and outside it, who say, Actually, one thing that has happened over this administration is brought home the fact that the trade relationship America has with China does need rebalancing. Are you a bit critical then of the way that the argument was conducted before and think there was too much of a, a consensus on that that is now being questioned? I think there is broad agreement among knowledgeable observers in the United States, economists, political scientists, and others, that the U.S.-China relationship, economic relationship, is out of whack. And it's not just trade or even especially trade. I think it's investment in technology transfer, uh, intellectual property, subsidization in China of sectors that are at the cutting edge of technology and protection by China of its own domestic market so that foreign firms don't have a chance to compete. There are national security implications also of some of these technologies. So were you as worried about Huawei as the president is? I think it's appropriate to be concerned about that. I don't want to endorse the particulars of what the president has said on Huawei, but the potential for rivalry here to end up in a decoupling of technologies globally is something that I think should concern the entire world going forward. Another issue of concern to the entire world is climate change. Uh, you, you've been involved recently, or found a member, in fact, of the of the Climate Leadership Council, a group that's calling for a carbon fee and dividend mm-hmm. in the U.S. to fight climate change. Could you talk a bit about why you think that's the best way to reduce carbon emissions? I think it's time for the United States to act. Um, The United States has contributed very importantly to this problem. It's a global problem that requires a global solution. But to think that other countries are going to step up and come to the table when the United States has done so little, I think that that's something that's not going to happen. I want to see the United States take leadership here. And I strongly believe that pricing carbon emissions has to be part of uh, the solution to this problem. It creates the right incentives in the marketplace for people to change their behavior and for the kinds of long-term investments and technological innovation and investment in new technologies that's necessary to really get to a net neutral carbon economy by 2040 or 2050. The part that might slightly you know, give pause for thought is ExxonMobil also supporting this policy. Some people might think that's a bit of a strange partnership. Am I being too cynical? Well, the Climate Leadership Council that I'm part of starts from the premise that we're not going to have 
an effective policy that can be in place for decades and decades to come unless all major groups involved in this are happy with the solution and committed to seeing it work. What we've tried to do is bring together Republicans and Democrats and big businesses in all sectors of the economy and also environmentalists. What a carbon fee would do, we would start at about $43 a ton and it would rise over time at um, pretty aggressively at 5% above inflation. That path provides the kind of certainty about what regulation will be for many years to come that business needs to undertake long-term investments. I should ask our economics editor if he's impressed. What do you reckon, Henry? Oh, well, uh, Dr. Yellen's certainly espousing a common view among economists. I think the question is whether or not the use of the revenue to give it back to the American people is the is the right thing to do. The novel thing about this proposal is it sort of send, as I understand it, it would send checks in the post almost to That's right. every American household. Is the, is the idea there just to make it so sort of salient when this thing arrives that you think, you know, I'm, I'm hugely in favour of a carbon tax because I don't need to tell That's you an econo- economist would say better just to cut income taxes, isn't it? Right. Well, we call this the carbon dividend plan because, as you say, all the tax revenue would go into rebates. It's a highly progressive way to redistribute the revenue. It protects and even leaves ahead the bottom 70% of households. This needs to be something that's politically viable. And look around the world and see what the reaction is when carbon taxes are proposed and most American or other families in other countries feel they're going to come out behind. So I think protecting most of those who are going to be impacted by the tax is simply absolutely necessary for political viability. As we come to the end, and and you've been looking back a bit on on your time at the Fed as well as the the challenges ahead, it just struck me that when I interviewed Christine Lagarde last year for this show, when she was head of the IMF, she told me that she'd felt a bit lonely uh, since you stepped down because she was now the only woman. (laughs) I see. I see. (laughs) I think, well, she, I, always... I think she was open to you know open to a glass of wine whenever you were in town. No, but she also said <laughs> she said she was now often the only woman in a group photo at an international economic meeting. She felt that there was a lot that needed to change about that. But yes. I think you've said you didn't feel that you experienced discrimination. So why aren't there more women in these pictures? Um, well, I think there has been discrimination against women and minorities in economics. Problems of representation of women start early. It starts at the high school or undergraduate level. Women aren't attracted into economics in the numbers that they should be. To the extent that they are, they tend not to go into fields like macroeconomics and um, international economics, although that is changing and the numbers are increasing. You know, I feel very close to Christine and I admire what she's done uh, to try to promote the success of women in our field. And it is true that when she and I were sitting around tables at the G20 or the IMF or other places, there are not a lot of women in the front rows at the tables, but there are many more women in the back benches. And I think what we need to do, and I know Christine was focused on this and I have been as well, is to make sure that the people who are coming through the pipeline 
and have the chance to be front benchers, receive the kinds of support, mentorship, training, and experiences that will let them succeed. And that's my hope going forward. I was just wondering, and on that point, sometimes the issue of women in economics, there's discussion about the extent to which the subject itself needs to change. Is there something inherent to economics, which is sort of male dominated, or is it just a representation issue? Uh, Because they're two subtly different points. I think it's a representation issue, but the research that's done and the focus partly reflects the interest of people who've gone into the field. Um, I mean, if you look at what women, women obviously work in all fields of economics. They're not confined to any particular field, but I think it's also not unfair to say that women tend to care disproportionately about issues affecting people, whether it's children, the family, education, healthcare, labor markets. There is a fair amount of research in these areas, but if women went into the field and minorities more than they do, the preponderance of research would begin to change and move more into those areas, I think. Very last thought. Why be an economist? Well, it's a fascinating field. I have absolutely no regret. These economic problems affect people's lives vitally and deeply. And I think economists have a great deal to contribute, both through teaching and research and policy work, to help people make their lives better and more successful. Janet Yellen, Henry Kerr, thank you both very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Anne. And we want to know what you think. How can more women get onto the front benches of economics? Who should take credit for America's unprecedented economic growth spurt? And how long can it continue? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. You can also hear further debate on the economic impact of the spread of the new coronavirus and how to prepare for it. That's on our Money Talks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London... This is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.